If you're able, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because we believe this is Holy Scripture, divinely inspired and preserved. Here now is the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive? If my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Please be seated. Well, this is the first message in a new sermon series. It's focused on the parables of Jesus. I hope you're going to look forward to this series. It's going to contain some of the known and some of the lesser known of these stories that Jesus used to communicate his message. Today's parable, the unforgiving servant, is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Several of his parables have what are called parallel passages in Mark or in Luke, but this one's only found in Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Matthew was written to, let's call it a Jewish audience. We should understand it through that lens. Matthew is quoting the Old Testament 62 times during his Gospel. That's more than Mark, Luke, or John. And he uses a phrase here, kingdom of heaven. And we should look at that as a a term rather specific to a Jewish audience. It's referred to as a reverential Jewish expression. The time period this was written would be about the year 55 AD, more or less 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. Matthew's purpose in writing to the Jews is to convince them Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied Messiah that they were looking for. And that his genealogy and his resurrection should prove this. The Jews needed to be reminded of these truths, but you know, it made them uncomfortable. Now, most of us don't realize that sometimes we have the same tendency. We don't like to be made uncomfortable. Paul warns us against this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a fairly well-known passage in which he speaks about, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead 
To suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Now, the term itching ears refers to those times when you and I want to be told what we're used to hearing. We definitely don't want to hear something that's going to challenge us. Uh, we want to hear something that will make us feel better about ourselves. And for this reason, we can probably relate to some of the struggles that Peter's having when he asks Jesus this question. He says, how many times should I forgive a fellow believer who has sinned against me? Let's understand the context of the question here. In Jewish society, the phrase sinned against me means they've broken one of the Jewish laws. Not necessarily what today we would call a criminal effects. It's more likely a hurtful action, a refusal to return something that was owed, a deep dispute between the people. But Peter had the perspective of a first century Jew. And to give us a better understanding, I'm going to briefly recap something I covered with you some months ago, and that was that Jewish law actually came in three different categories. One of them was called ceremonial law. It was specific to Israel's worship. It pointed them forward to the coming Messiah. Now, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, these ceremonial laws, at least from a salvation perspective, were not necessary anymore, but the principles behind them to worship and to love a holy God, those principles still apply. The Pharisees often accused Jesus of violating ceremonial law, such as when he would heal on the Sabbath. The next category was civil law. This is daily living in Israel, and it's hard for us to compare to that because it was a different culture and it was a different time, but the principles behind the commands are timeless. Jesus demonstrated these principles by his life. And I might add that you can trace the civil laws of the United States and probably most of Northern Europe, you can find their roots in the civil laws of the Old Testament. Lastly, there's what was called moral law. Direct command of God. It requires strict obedience. They reveal the nature and the will of God. Jesus obeyed moral law completely in that he never sinned. And because they require strict obedience, they have a name for these. They are called the Ten Commandments. By the way, we should not think of them as the ten good ideas that might be helpful. If you want to, if you're not offended by any of them, kind of, sort of, if it's convenient for you, I guess. That's not the way to think of the Ten Commandments. So this gives you some idea of the context that Matthew is writing to and the perspective that Peter's coming from when he asks Jesus that question. Lord, how oft, in this case, in the classic translation, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says, till seven times. Peter's revealing his struggle with this. So he asks Jesus that question, and in verse 22, Jesus answers his question. I say not unto you seven times, but until 70 times seven is the classic rendering of it. Jesus is teaching the disciples about the kingdom of heaven. Peter and his colleagues are understanding it from an earthly perspective. And so that's part of the disconnect. But to understand what Jesus is saying, look at the context of the whole chapter. In Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking about forgiving each other more broadly especially about true Christian character. As an example, this statement to forgive our brother 77 times, or 70 times 7, 
It comes right after the passage where Jesus is talking about disputes within the church in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 20. This is where he talks about if somebody has offended you or sinned against you, that you go to them and you talk to them, and if that doesn't resolve it, you take one or two others with you, and if that doesn't resolve it, you eventually take it, it says, to the church. In that case, I would interpret it to mean probably to the elders, and the idea is that even if you're actually wronged, it's better to be wronged and not take each other to court. They're talking about disputes. They're not talking about criminal acts, okay? Let's understand the difference here. Peter's wishing to be especially forgiving. He asked Jesus, should I forgive somebody who has sinned against me seven times? You might say, well, why seven? You say, well, that's the perfect number. It's the number of days of creation. Well, that's true, but I don't think that's what Peter was coming from. Rabbis at the time taught that forgiving somebody more than three times was not necessary. Amos chapter 1 speaks of this. God forgave Israel's enemies three times, and then they faced the consequences of their mistreatment of Israel. But when Peter suggests forgiveness more than double of that example, he probably expected Jesus to respond positively. But Jesus instead responds with this figure of, 77 times, or if you, if you take the classic translation literally 490 times, it would mean. It probably stunned the disciples. Now, Jesus probably isn't limiting the number to that number of times. For all practical purposes, you're not going to keep track of it. I think what he's pointing them to is that Christians with forgiving hearts continue to forgive with as much grace the last time as they do the first time. And that being said, I don't know about you, but frankly, I'm not that grace-filled. <laughs> the only way I might ever be able to stem, extend that kind of forgiveness is because the Holy Spirit lives in me. It's he who provides me the ability to forgive over and over. The reality is because God has forgiven me over and over. And so this is where in verse 23, Jesus begins this parable of the unforgiving servant driving home the point that we've been forgiven this huge offense against a holy God. How much more should we be ready to forgive those who have committed offenses against us? Now, the Apostle Paul addresses this also in Ephesians 4.32, pretty well-known passage, where he says, there we are, I, oh, there we are. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. That's the uh, King James Version on the screen. And I think the intention is grace is to be dispensed abundantly to fellow believers. To fellow believers. And I'll, there's an obvious question that asks, and I'll get to that in a moment. Let me take a very brief rabbit trail out here, okay? My dad told me a story of how when he was growing up, and he remembers making money shoveling snow. This was in the neighborhood he grew up in, east side of the city of Detroit. And he remembers a big storm that came through. And down there, eight inches of snow is a big storm. And he was shoveling, shoveling snow for people in the neighborhood. He remembers a corner lot that he did. So it had the two sidewalks, the driveway, and the walkway up to the front of the house. And so he went up and knocked on the door afterwards just to say it's done, hoping that they might give him a little something. Well, they did. The lady of the house, who never said a word to him, paid him five cents, 
It was 1939, understand. But she didn't give him a nickel. She slowly, one at a time, with her thumb, dispensed five pennies, very miserly and very slowly. That's how he described it. Let's just hope we don't dispense forgiveness the way she dispensed those pennies back in 1939. So let's look just a little more closely at a couple things in the parable. In verse 23, it begins by describing this servant who had been forgiven a huge debt. There's a figure there, 10,000 talents. Now, I looked it up a couple of different times to be sure that I had this figure correct. In today's U.S. dollars, $3.5 billion. Billion with a B. To give you an idea of how many days of work, 60 million working days of pay at the pay rate at that time. The parable then speaks of that servant who had just forgiven, had just been forgiven such a huge debt by his king. He's now unwilling to forgive a fellow servant that worked with him who owed him a much smaller amount, 100 denarii. That's 100 days wages, a single denarius was a day's wage. By the way, it was about 16 cents back then. And given that perspective, I guess my dad getting paid five cents for shoveling snow for an hour was pretty generous on the part of that lady. So let's keep some perspective. <laughs> but the principle here is that compared to the amount the first servant had been forgiven, this hundred denarii was a very small debt. And Jesus is saying, the one who had been forgiven much should have also forgiven generously. The principle of forgiveness is that grace and forgiveness to fellow believers should be as generous as possible. And again, we're not talking about a criminal act here. And by the way, in forgiving, that doesn't necessarily mean that the damaged relationship is healed right away. Like the effects of sin in our lives, we've been declared righteous that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It's a, something of a theological term. But the ongoing natural consequences of our sin may be ongoing in life. But Jesus is pointing us to the kingdom of heaven. He's telling us, make our relationship with fellow believers who may have wronged you more reflective of your relationship between you and God. So you might ask, well, okay, but what about people who are not yet believers? Well, I would say these principles still apply, but the nature of the relationship shapes the scope of it. But please remember this. Forgiving somebody is also a means of protecting ourselves, too. You've uh, heard me use a phrase that says, refusing to forgive a fellow believer is like drinking poison in the hope that they get sick. Sometimes unforgiveness consumes you from the inside. That doesn't relieve them of the natural consequences of their sin. But it means that we are to forgive one another. And one of the best examples that I remember of this, those of you that are, oh, maybe 50 or older would remember the event. Pope John Paul II was shot in 1981. He survived, obviously, and served many years in that role. But a few years after that, when his intended assassin was in prison, the Pope went and visited him in prison as a demonstration of this. Now, the, didn't release the man from his prison, 
But I think what the Pope was trying to do is to plant the seeds. They hoped the Holy Spirit would grow so that the man didn't have to spend eternity in a sense of a prison. So the Pope was trying to live out this parable. Now at the very end of the parable, there's a kind of a stunning passage. Then the king sees the unforgiving mindset of the servant who had been forgiven the huge debt. He's thrown into prison, but if you look at the old translation, it doesn't say turned over to the jailer. It says turned over to the tormentors. And actually, that's a closer way of translating the Greek word. Essentially, the king turned him over to be straightened out by having a little attitude adjustment administered. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think of times in my life when I've been convicted of my own unforgiving nature, in particular with high school students, high school band students, who did something that affected the whole group and then repeated that same mistake more than once. There are earthly consequences for certain choices we make. But when it comes to forgiveness, I'm not suggesting that people who make bad choices are not going to face natural results of them. But we need to keep the perspective of eternity. Jesus uses financial examples probably because we can more easily relate to them. He isn't necessarily saying you forgive a massive financial amount to someone else. He's speaking in terms of the principles of relationship between Christian believers. He's pointing us to what those relationships will one day be like when true believers will be together in the Lord's presence. Reconcile what you can now. Let go of the rest and don't carry it, even if you're the one who's been wronged. I think that's what he's getting at. So how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, I think we have to keep in mind, since our sin debt was paid in full by Christ, and that's the basis of our forgiveness, we can't pay it, we can't earn our salvation. That's why Jesus paid the debt. He's the only one who could pay it. It is a gift of grace. And having received that gift of divine forgiveness, we're called to extend that to fellow believers who may have wronged us. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us, by extension, because the first servant had forgiven all, then he should have forgiven the man who owed him. And by the way, did you notice in both cases in the parable, they asked for more time and they said they would repay what they owe. They didn't ask for their debt to be forgiven. But as a child of God, by faith in Christ, you and I have had our sin debt forgiven. And therefore, when someone sins against us, we need to be ready to forgive them from a heart of gratitude because of the grace we've received. And I would close this message by reminding us from a line in something we just recited together about 20 minutes ago. That famous line in the Lord's Prayer where it says, and forgive us our trespasses. Or is there something more to it? I think the rest of the line says, as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Those are the three different renderings of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whichever wording you grew up with, don't forget the second part of the line. And the reason? This is what Jesus himself has said to us. And I can't speak for you, but for me, that's more than a good enough reason to do so. 
So as we now transition to our time of communion, I'm going to ask each of us to go to a few moments of silent prayer. And each of us, me too, need to ask ourselves, how are we doing in terms of following the principle behind this? Sometimes forgiving somebody else is not going to release them from the natural effects of what they've done, but it does mean that we're not going to let it consume us from the inside, that we're going to want them to come to repentance, we're going to want them to seek correction, and we would hope that someday that relationship might be restored. But we would seek to do what Jesus has talked about here. So we're going to go to silent prayer at this time, and then we will come together and partake of this ordinance known as the Lord's Supper. Let's go to silent prayer.